everybody. This is Stephanie Ruper. Thank you so much for tuning into the Naked Humanity podcast, where we take a deep dive into what it means to be human in the modern world. Today is episode number 56, and I have on Steve Patterson, who's a freelance philosopher, and we discuss all things logic, love, and life. So I am very very happy to share this interview with Steve with you. I stumbled upon Steve's work some time ago, uh, just getting acquainted with people who are thinking online and in conventional ways. And I have talked with you many times before. I've hosted people on the podcast who sort of think or do thinking uh, or learning in untraditional ways. Uh, and Steve is a very rigorous thinker and philosopher who has does not have a degree in philosophy. You know, he travels the world and uh, interviews people and does research and in in all of the most important senses as a philosopher uh, just outside of the academy, which I think is fantastic and wonderful and, and important. Uh, and so I brought him on today and uh, we had a really nice chat about uh, his experiences, why philosophy is important to him, uh, why logic is important. You know, logic is so lost on us often in today's world and um, it can be so, so enlightening. And we talk about what you can know with logic and what you can't. And um, also his experiences with love and how that has shaped his worldview and philosophy and all that sort of stuff. And he's just a really fascinating uh, and fun person to get to know. So uh, this interview, I am sure, will be uh, really, really fun and uh, informational for you, a really great way to sort of uh, learn about uh philosophy and learn about these questions like, how do we know what we know? You know, do we know what we know? What exists? How do we know what exists? Uh, in, in a way that's uh, actually quite um, engaging. You know, it's not like reading a textbook that can be very, very hard. So um, Steve, just a little bit about him. Uh, he is the host of Patterson in Pursuit, which is this uh, show where he literally traveled around the world interviewing experts about various uh, questions, which is um, really, really wonderful. Um, he produces, produces videos and um, podcasts and a book on logic, which we talk about in, in the podcast. And so I, um, he really does a lot of stuff. So I will provide a link to his website and all of his contact uh, information and his materials and how you can get to it uh, in the show notes. Uh, Mexico Explore for yourself. It's all um, really straightforward and uh, really wide-ranging in, in what you can uh, learn from Steve, who is just so uh, committed to uh, understanding the world rigorously and communicates about it in a, like, a really effective and, I think, uh, clear and engaging in, in good way. So uh, Steve is fantastic, and you, I think, are um, yeah, in for a treat. So without further ado, here is philosopher Steve Patterson. <laughs> Hi, Steve. Hi there. Hi. It's uh, it's. I was just saying to you, um, but I'll say it again for the audience. Uh, I am a big fan of your work. I appreciate that. Uh, thanks for inviting me on your show. Yeah, thank you. I, I mean, to to be fair, I actually haven't read any of your like philosophical uh, work, but I, <laughs> I, I, I really admire your approach to it. Um, and uh, oh, I, there are a number of things I want to ask right now. Um, could you, but I'll, I'll start, I'll, I'll be patient. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about like what it is that you're doing with your life and, and why, you know, how, why you ended up doing it? 
Yeah. So many years ago, um, probably about 15 years ago or so, I started getting very interested in politics. And I, my family kind of had some, you know, um, uh, American conservative leanings. And I thought, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So I started researching and researching and I was like, well, maybe that makes a little bit less sense. I, I, my political ideas changed a bit. And the more I kept researching into political theory, I realized that a bunch of my political ideas came out of kind of economic assumptions. Mm. And I thought, oh, you know, what I should do is I should probably start researching economics because this seems like more fundamental than political stuff. So for several years, I started just independently researching economics. And I thought, oh, man, this really explains how the world works. This is great information. And then I kept researching and I thought, well, you know, actually, these economic ideas, they come out of a particular methodology. And like economic methodology, I started researching. I thought, well, actually, these economic methodology ideas presuppose some philosophical ideas like metaphysics and epistemology. I don't even know what the hell the world is. Like, so <laughs> I started then going down and I found my home in philosophy. So I just started independently researching this for many years. And then I decided I'm going to try to have a go at this professionally. So uh, I started my own website. I started writing. I have a podcast called Patterson in Pursuit where I've traveled around the world interviewing everybody from professors at prestigious universities to like Buddhist monks in Thailand and Japan, just trying to have interesting conversations for my own sake and then recording them for people and developed a little bit of a following. People seem to like it. So that's what I'm doing. I'm like, a, I guess, an independent uh, philosopher. Mm. That's, uh, well, obviously, I think that that's really, really great. Um, I am curious. So as you have gone back or down or up, I'm not sure what direction that's in, you know, deep, <laughs> deeper to the bottom. Maybe Actually, it's down. Maybe it's down. Mm. <laughs> uh, as, as you have done that and moved into politics and economics and philosophy, uh, has your work sort of had implications for the questions that you started with? With these, absolutely, and and they still do. Actually, it's it's funny you mentioned that. So, uh, I've been very persuaded by libertarian political theory for a long time. I think it, it uh, is based in some good economic principles. I like the metaphysics of it. I'm kind of an individualist. Um, <laughs> however, it does imply a particular metaphysics, which, as of late, I'm. I'm thinking might be incorrect. So uh, I'm working through some, some ideas with like how objects are composed, like, you know, muriology, the relationship between parts and wholes. And if it's the case, there are such things as communities that are like unique or that are over and above individuals that, uh, that would force me to change some of my uh, political beliefs. So I'm currently in the process of once again, fundamentally revising uh, everything. I, I still have a lot of these biases and I think there's something unique about economics, which I think if you wanna understand how the world works in a practical sense, diving into economics is incredibly valuable. And if you really wanna grasp deep economics, then you can go into philosophy. But it's, I think it's gonna be hard for me to revise some of those economic conclusions, even if the metaphysics of like communities and individuals changes. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that makes, that makes sense to me because I have forever, very early on, I was obsessed with the question why, and I would go back and back and back and back and back, you know, deep or deeper and deeper to, well, why this? And then this, and then this, and I would be at this like fundamental question of like, well, why does anything exist? And that's yeah, yeah. why I, <laughs> that's why I do today. Um, but, uh, I also, 
um, as valuable as I find that, I do still understand that there are sort of steps along the way that can uh, take dominance or 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 yeah. be more right. Like there is maybe like some sort of axiom or um, mm. value judgment in, in the middle. So you're like, okay, like I have different ideas about objects, but I still think this economic, you know. Yeah, yeah, and a, a good example would be something I think like, like in uh, chemistry. So there's some f- super deep questions about you know what is the physical world and what and what is its relationship with our minds. Like when we're observing the physical world, are we actually observing the physical world or a representation of it? Like there's some hard questions about idealism that I, I haven't sorted out. Despite that fact uh, that maybe the world is mental we still have a structure of knowledge in chemistry, which is incredibly powerful and very plausible. And one way or another, there's part, there, are, there are claims about how the world works, I think, that are true in chemistry, even if the underlying metaphysics is different than we intuitively think. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm also curious how much you've sort of, you mentioned biases and it's funny because literally, you know, three minutes before you and I got on this call, I was finishing a podcast about biases. Um, and I'm just like literally constantly always saying to people, you know, like we are bi- like the worst bias is that we might think we're not biased. Mm. Um, but I, I'm wondering like how much learning about uh, evolution or psychology or human behavior might also play a role in this um, because I sort of see them as, as existing alongside questions about metaphysics and, and yeah. epistemology, right? Because you're looking at reality, but also like, you know, why Why do humans have the kinds of desires they have? These are also very biological questions. Yeah, very much so. And I think, you know, any serious examination into epistemology, if you have, if you have high epistemic standards, is going to reveal that humans are extremely limited creatures at trying to get access to the truth. So uh, uh, I wrote one um, book in philosophy so far. It's called Square One, The Foundations of Knowledge. And I'm trying to answer the question, is there anything that we can know? Like, do we have access to any knowledge about anything whatsoever? Or is this all just kind of a game? And I did find that there are, there seem to be some extremely abstract truths that our minds can, can wrap around and understand. But they're things like, you know, everything is the way that it is, and it isn't the way that it isn't. I believe that is true. Yes. So for me, that's like my foundation. What's the foundation of knowledge that? It's something like logic, some logical principles, which is cool. I think that's exciting, but it doesn't tell you awful. It doesn't tell you many particulars about the world, let's say. Mm, Okay. So what in this book, you know, like um, what is its usefulness for people? Does it have some sort of applicable insight when you sort of talk about these vague abstract statements? Yeah. So... Uh, I wrote it selfishly because it's uh, just as we do. A, yeah, it's just a an, an intellectual process that I had personally examined and become kind of obsessed with. I, I figured the reasoning is this: if it's the case that we can know anything whatsoever, even if it's abstract, I want to try to base my beliefs around that foundation. If if there aren't foundations, well, that's a different story. Then I have to come and live my life a little bit differently because. I have, things don't work the way that I, I initially thought they work when I was worked when I was growing up. Um, but having that foundation for me has been very valuable. It's like uh, it's psychologically valuable. I, I think it's a good starting point. It's actually interesting because there are other areas of thought. Like um, if you get, there are a lot of interesting claims made in um, interpretations of quantum mechanics. 
like, I don't know if this, this is an area we can talk about. I'd be happy to yeah. where questions of logic actually come into play where there's some weird results in quantum mechanics. And back in the day, people thought, well, maybe we actually need to revise logic itself to make sense of this quantum phenomena. Well, if it's the case that there are some of these very limited abstract truths we can grasp, then I think it has at least uh, one implication on interpretations of quantum mechanics. However things are in the world, that is the way they are. <laughs> and it is not the way that it is not that way. So if anybody mm -hmm. claiming otherwise, if they have maybe a... Uh, one particular interpretation of the Copenhagen interpretation implies that maybe things aren't any way at all, or maybe they're in contradictory states at the same time. I think that's definitely false. But. I see. And have you <laughs> yeah. talked with any quantum physicists about this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I had an interview, I think actually it was at Oxford. It was uh, either uh, Oxford or Cambridge. There was a quantum physicist I was, I was talking to. I, I was out there in the UK and, um, we talked a little bit about this. I also talked about it with, I think it was Timothy Williamson. Um, we were talking about the idea of, can you have any real contradictory states in the world? Um, and this was a really interesting conversation because, <laughs> so, so Timothy Williamson is this famous logician, right? The most famous logician in the world. And we were talking about the laws of logic and I was saying, okay, would you be comfortable claiming that you're certain that the laws of logic are universal and you can't break them. Um, and he said, well, no. He said, I, I, I don't, and, and, he, and he said something along the lines of, I don't think that's the right disposition for a thinker. And I thought that was a really interesting response that though deep down, he's probably thinking to himself, says, of course there are no contradictions. He thought kind of from a practical perspective, it would be bad to slip into the area of thinking that you're certain about something because that might lead towards dogmatism. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've, 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 and also the question of contradiction comes up in um, the philosophy of mathematics. And I've had a bunch of interviews on my show um, about the philosophy of mathematics. You have things like infinite sets which I spoke with a, a professor in Columbia about, and he was saying, maybe that's an example of a true contradiction. An infinite set seems like you've got two mutually exclusive concepts, but yet it's very useful in the philosophy of mathematics. So um, it is something that, that comes up a lot kind of at the fundamentals of a bunch of different disciplines. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm sort of discerning a theme. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of themes, but one theme I'm thinking about, and I've sort of seen from your writings, is that you're a really big fan of logic. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and and I think that's I think that's really important and, and something that we should be talking about a lot because for some reason or another, logic isn't particularly trendy right now. It's almost mm -hmm. seen as like a like a discourse influenced by power that is not nearly a, like we're just we're mm -hmm. very skeptical of claims to be objective and logic kind of claims mm -hmm. to be objective. So, mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about like why you think? you know, logic matters and maybe like particularly today? Uh, yes, uh, I would love to. Um, Yay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my interest in logic um, blends into metaphysics. So there's a lot of people that, that think that the philosophical disciplines are kind of compartmentalized and isolated from one another. You have epistemology and you have logic and you have metaphysics and you have ethics. I actually don't think that's how it works. I think mm -hmm. they, they're kind of all blended together in one thing that is your own worldview, your own philosophy. So with questions of logic, um, I, think they, I think they get down to the fundamentals of both thought and the fundamentals of metaphysics. So um, 
can like the question, can something be in a state that it's not in? Now, this is a question that, that actually has some reflection both on human, how humans think about things and how the world might be. So for example, I, I could make the claim, in fact, I would make this claim that it doesn't even make sense to claim that there's, there could be you know, the world in a state that it isn't in. Like, I don't even think logical contradictions make sense on a, on a, on a thought level, but I also make the claim that it is impossible when you think through the metaphysics for the universe itself, separate of our thought to be in a state that it is not in. Mm. So, um, yeah, that, that would be where, where I, why I'm so interested in logic is because it's not only kind of, I think the foundation for rational thinking, like don't contradict yourself would be the, the axiom I'm a big fan of, but it also gives us a little bit of insight into like, I think the structure of reality. Mm. Um, yeah, in, in studying logic, like the act of studying logic, I think mm. can be so important. You know, you can take you can take a whole course, you can take so many courses, right? Like logic is so can be so enlightening in that sense because mm. you realize that there are so many, you know, fallacies or whatever, so many oh, yeah. mistakes you can make. And it's like our world is made out of like it's so ragingly illogical. <laughs> oh, oh yes, definitely. Like if, if you want to be bothered all day, every day by everything that everybody says, then study <laughs> logic <laughs> because you'll find that almost no propositions have a lot of epistemic weight behind them because if you dig deep enough, you're probably going to find some contradiction or, or illogical jump somewhere. And it's a hard state to be in, right? It's actually, it's, it's also psychologically hard because, you know, we kind of port around concepts about who we are and like i am a human that has a name and it re relates to the world this way and this is the my my history and this is how i conceive of myself but when you really try to be deeply rational suddenly you realize that whole structure isn't as solid maybe as you originally thought it was um, and it's a hard state to be in it's like honestly if i'm speaking truthfully i don't fully know what i am that's a weird state to be in. I, I would like to be able to walk around as a human and say, oh, well, of course, of all the things that I know, I know exactly what I am, um, but I don't. <laughs> so, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. not easy. There's a, there's a sense, you know, I, I spend so much time thinking about like the confidence with which people make truth claims, right? Because mm -hmm. I think often people are very, very confident, although part of the reason that they're confident is maybe because they're defending themselves because they know mm -hmm. that they're not confident. But mm -hmm. um like I personally, I sort of, I think of myself as somebody, and I think our world in some ways is extremely uh, epistemologically humble, right? Like uh, timid of making truth claims, at least with respect mm. to like science and religion and stuff, mm. you know, people generally. But I, I really struggle. People ask me all the time, like, well, what do you think about healthcare? I'm like, how can I, how can I possibly, like, I have some vague ideas, but like, I'm not an expert in healthcare, right? And so mm. like, I, I so much refrain from making truth claims. And I wonder if sort of you have through this process of learning mm. about economics and logic and philosophy and stuff mm. sort of seen a fluctuation in your like degree of confidence? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so there's this weird thing that happens when one is researching deep versus broad. So there's uh, there's one approach to epistemology that says you can only make truth claims when you have 
deep knowledge of one area of thought. Only the experts in that area of thought are the ones that might might have gotten far enough along to make a truth claim. <clears throat> I don't actually find that rigorous because uh, to, to my great surprise, before looking before looking into this, I wouldn't have understood this at all. But um, it turns out that breadth of knowledge can actually be uh, methodologically superior than just depth of knowledge. Because what you find is there are a bunch of assumptions that every discipline and, and area of thought has hmm. that tend to go unchallenged. And then there are structures of knowledge that are built on those assumptions, you know, very like, like beautiful, let's say castles in the sky, ornate. Um, but the assumptions tend to be wrong. And this is this kind of the story of human thinking forever is that you have the contemporary experts in a particular discipline at a particular time that all agreed that X was true and X was not true because there was some assumption that they got wrong. So in, in that sense, I am extremely skeptical making any strong claims about how the world works um, almost at all. However, there is... There is there is, um, I guess, an exception that, just like in chemistry, I do think you can end up uh, effectively saying true things. So like if you think about how um, molecules interact or atoms interact to form uh, larger molecules and those molecules behave differently in the world than the individual atoms, it very well might be that the fundamental assumption of what atoms are is truly incorrect. It's like, oh, they, they aren't these little spheres rotating. That like, the, the model that you see in the textbook is totally wrong. It could be completely different. But I do think you can make some effectively correct claims that if, if you just take like some cautious parameters and saying, I don't fundamentally know what an atom is, but I could tell you about some predictable behavior in the world, then I think you can make um, some truth claims, uh, relative truth claims. They're not, of course, absolute truth claims or so something like that. Mm. So there's sort of practically practically true, true. right like you know yeah. we all uh can you can drive a car at you know a certain yeah. speed and we're like okay and it's going to hit the wall at like the whatever yeah. and it's practically true even though like the mechanics of the force and stuff we still have no we still have no idea yeah it's something like i like to use the term effectively true but practically true works too in the sense that we have we tell a story about mm -hmm. what the world is and how it works and Within that story, it allows us to do things effectively, practically, and consistently across time. So the story that the engineer tells about what an engine is, is true in the sense that it allows us to consistently do something that the world does seem to work in the way in practice that they describe it, even at the fundamental level, if we have no idea of what we're even talking about. Hmm. Um question and it's okay if you don't feel like answering it uh so i spend i i'm a technically a scholar of religion um mm. and people ask me all the time like i'm trying to sort of shed light on to people on the modern religious spiritual philosophical landscapes to help them make sense of this like mm. cluster fuck of, of what we're in um so uh what is your opinion of religious truth claims and like how oh, we can yeah. evaluate them so i'm uh, this is an area of active research that I'm very excited about um, because, so I grew up in a kind of an evangelical Christian household and I uh, fell away from those beliefs. And I was for some period of time, I would say something like, maybe like an implicit deist 
or it was specifically, I thought there was a, there was a problem with the idea of an infinite temporal regress. Okay. okay. So like, there was a first cause and that's pretty much all I can say. Sure. Um, so I find because of this bias growing up in the way that evangelical Christians talk about religion, mm-hmm. I was very dismissive of most religious claims because I thought, well, they're just wrong. You listen to them, you evaluate them and they're wrong. Well, recently <laughs> I've come around to think, well, in fact, there's probably a bunch of really important, effective truths in religion. You just don't take the claims literally, you know, and there's one idea that uh, I keep coming back to that I've, I've really just become overwhelmingly persuaded by in, in the past few years, which is that when uh, sound religious thinkers are talking about God, you can understand it as talking about the universe. So when we say God is omnipresent, it's like that's at the very least, that's hard to understand if we're talking about a person that is omnipresent. Like maybe it's possible. I don't want to dismiss that. But it, I could also talk about the universe as saying the universe is quite literally omnipresent. And like God is omniscient. God knows everything. Okay, maybe it is a person that has all of this knowledge. Or maybe it's a way of saying you can't hide information from the universe. Like everything that is in existence is a state of the universe and therefore there's some type of awareness or information that the universe has about its own state. You could mm-hmm. talk about it, it that way. So you go through a bunch of religious claims with this lens and suddenly they make a hell of a lot of sense. Um, even, even, yeah, like specific niche claims, I think you, if you interpret through this lens, um, whether or not they're uh, literally true is irrelevant because there's truth to be found in the claims just interpreting that way. So mm. with regards to religion, uh, I'll be very frank. I think with religion, what has happened is very profound ideas that are quite important that discuss the relationship between your existence and the universe's existence of which you are a part um, have been bastardized over time, taken literally, and turned into some torturous abomination that people walk around dogmatically believing and going to war over, when if they just interpreted things a little bit different, not only would it make more sense, but I think um, it would be, it, uh, it would r- resolve a lot of, let's say, religious conflict in the world. Mm. No. Uh, yeah, that, that's very helpful, and I, I have a lot of reflections. Um, I uh, I personally I grew up in a in a home that hated religion so opposite and uh, realized that I had somewhere in my early twenties that I had rejected religion without ever engaging mm. it mm. and that was silly and so I printed I was living in a small village in the Italian Alps and I back then like you didn't have whatever so I, I like had to print stuff so. I went to the printer like in my local town and I like got out my Italian dictionary and I was like, whatever. Um, And the first article I read, I was like, wow, like you can say really intelligent, really beautiful things like in, in this lens that we call theological, but it's the definitions are very tricky, you know, philosophical theology, you know, I, um, I, I I don't really know. And I, I really liked, you know, what you said, we're definitely like, we're very human and it's very easy to see how like religion, the ugliness of religion is human ugliness, you know, and the beauty of religion is the human, you know, grasping and and some sort of beautifulness. Yeah. Um, Which, which I, I really appreciate when you, you know, when you often talk to whatever, I, I really like that sort of nuance that you have in the 
appreciation. And I'm, I'm very interested. Yeah, I would be very interested to see like what would happen if you spent a couple of years in like theology, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm the way that I'm approaching things is uh, I'm researching many, many areas at once. So I'm definitely into theology. There, there's this, uh, this uh, thing that happens in any discipline, which is that you have you always have many schools of thought about some particular subject matter. So, like the the, the theological school, I would come from maybe like a Spinozan school that God is the universe looks completely different than the evangelical Christian thing. I mean, they're just so so totally different. And I don't, I'm not a pluralist in the sense that each is equally rigorous, each is equally valid and respectable. Um, I don't think the world works that way. I think there are particular interpretations and particular philosophies that are just categorically inferior and silly sometimes when compared to um, uh, better ways of thinking about things. I'll give you an example. Actually, I need to research this to figure out which of this is true, but I was told, my brother told me this story and I thought it encapsulated a phenomena so perfectly that I, I use this all the time when talking about religion. So uh, let's, let's say this is correct. It might not be, you have to double check. Um, there's a statue somewhere where uh, Moses has horns sticking out from the top of his head. And the story goes that the reason Moses has horns is because whoever the sculptor was, was living in a culture at the time in which they were uh, using, you know, the religious text that had a mistranslation of a particular like Hebrew or Greek word in it. And so through this mistranslation, it turned out instead of, you know, Moses was holy, it was Moses has horns. And so you know, the culture doesn't want to, uh, doesn't, doesn't like the idea of uh, thinking maybe something in the Bible is wrong. And so they say, well, if Moses has horns, damn, he's got horns because it's in my holy book. And so sure enough, more than Moses ends up with horns uh, in, a, in some beautiful marble structure. So to me, that would be, if that's true, that's an example of, well, they got that wrong. Like that is actually silly. And the, the alternative hypothesis that maybe there's a mistranslation and Moses didn't have horns is just better. Um, so I, I approach this also with religion where I'm, I want to hear everybody's opinion. I'm fascinated in everybody's different interpretations, but I don't want to pretend that like there isn't more or less plausible ways of thinking about religious or theological claims. Mm, yeah, I, I like that a lot. And I have um, very similar uh, opinions about that, which doesn't surprise me. Uh, so I am, I'm curious because we've been sort of talking about, um, truth claims and effective truth. And I am pretty sure <laughs> you have opinions about this. How yeah. do, how do these relate to, uh, how we figure out what to do? You know, like how do we be good? Right. Yeah. That's a really hard question. And I have a non-standard response here. Um, I, I try not to make many ethical claims because I'm so confused about what the world is, much less how it works, mm -hmm. that I don't want to say this is good and this is bad. <clears throat> um, I just don't know. I'm trying to figure out how the damn system works before I say this is good or this is bad. I would say there's one exception, one rather profound exception, which is love. So uh, many years ago, I fell in love with the woman who's now my wife. And I had this profound, life-changing Paul on the road to Damascus, like blinding light. Oh my God, love is, if anything is good, love is good. So I would say, I don't know what the world is or how it works. 
So I don't really know what good states are or bad states are, except love is good. That I would say confidently. <laughs> wow. There, yeah. Here is an experiential truth yes. claim. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I know. It's preposterous. Uh, I would never have expected prior to that moment that mm. that would give you reliable insight into the world. And having grown up in this kind of uh, evangelical Christian world, um, there were a lot of people claiming stuff like this. They, I would argue with them and they go, Steve, someday God's going to get you. You're just going to have an experience. And then you're going to believe. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I mean, maybe that's possible. I just forgive my skepticism. But sure enough, the, the profundity and nature of love, I would say, is so absurd. It's so absolutely, utterly absurd that I think it only makes sense in the context that love is like transcendentally good. Like you don't, we live in a, I would say it is true to say that we live in a universe in which love emerges. It is part of the structure of reality such that you can get love states and that requires explanation. It is not some weird coincidental state. I don't buy it's the idea that it's some uh, trivial thing. Um, I actually think it, if there is any good state, it is that state. And I wouldn't, it's not like, a, I'm not, I didn't arrive at that through a series of deductions and I wouldn't claim anybody can come to this conclusion through a series of deductions, but just, it is conceivably possible that what I'm saying is true. And if one has such an experience, perhaps one will conclude what I have as well. So, so fascinating. I actually am in the middle of writing a, I'm officiating a wedding this weekend and I'm in the middle of writing a, um, a little speech, I guess, about uh, the nature of the universe and and love and sort of uh, taking a vague and unrigorous metaphysical approach to the universe, which is that like all is ultimately, you know, the same, all is ultimately unified. And we have this experience of separateness, but love is sort mm -hmm. of the like move the like the realization of like the true nature of the cosmos, which yeah, is, yeah. you know, unity, which I, yeah. I find to be like a nice way to meld my love for metaphysics with my like love for human experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, two things on that. One, I think this is something that a lot of religions get right when they talk about love. Like mm -hmm. it really is this unique thing that deserves significant consideration and maybe a different type of storytelling than scientists tell. Um, two, actually what you're saying about everything being connected and love being a realization of that, I, I think there is a line of pure metaphysical argument which can can justify that. So you think about like, it might be the case that the universe is a bunch of objects in addition to relations. So you've got the object, you've got the other object, but these aren't isolated in two different systems, uh, systems two objects with a relation between them, and a, mm. a connection between them, if you prefer. It might be that the entire universe is literally connected objects. And it could be the case that... Uh, you could think of love as being a true objective connection of two people, two objects. So when one is in, the, one realizes the love state as a realization that, oh my goodness, we are actually in a true sense fundamentally connected. Mm. It could be the case. Yeah, I like. It, I tend to just I do a little bit of hand waving because I can get away with that. <laughs> and my like, you know, in the field of religion, you're just like, hmm, and then Sounds magic good. happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but and, and that's something that I actually first that was an idea I first encountered when I, I did my master's degree in the seminary, um, hmm. and I don't remember whose religious thought it was, but it's every like you said, you know, um, it's at the heart of all the religious traditions and. Mm -hmm. Um, it's very interesting. We have, we, you brought this up in the context of falling in love. Um, mm. I'm wondering though, if you mean like more than just romantic love, but you know, like, what do you mean here by love? 
So I don't know. Um, I would say my, I tend to be very blockheaded, very, very slow in a lot of ways, which is, uh, has some pros and it has some cons. Um, my experience was of romantic love and you could call it falling in love. You could also say, it was probably more accurate to say a realization of love that was there where it was like, and this is, this might be an important way to phrase it because it was very clear that I was not choosing it. It was not, I did not choose to have these feelings. It was a realization. Oh my God. Like, this is love and I can't do anything about it. It's like terrifying because you're in a very vulnerable state when you realize the love is there. It is life-changing and inescapable in a sense. <clears throat> so it might very well be that there are, there's this type of connection amongst everything in the universe. Uh, that would be rather beautiful. Um, but I have not, my experience, my personal experience has not been in that state. However, I've talked to lots of people. Uh, some, a lot of times this is induced by psychedelic drugs or meditation who do claim to be in that state of kind of ultimate loving unity with everything. So I, I consider that a possibility. I just have yet to have that experience myself. Mm. But so there's like this transcendent experience, you know, of like the, the being smacked with your connectedness yeah. or unity or whatever. Um, yeah. And then, but there's still also like day to day, like, oh, I love my dog. I love my friends. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and that sort of thing like that, that obviously doesn't not matter, you yeah. know, doesn't not matter as well. And I, uh, I'm wondering if this at all ties into, uh, you were... Uh, mentioning earlier metaphysics of persons and communities. Yeah. And I'm wondering if thinking about love is like, has any sort of um, effect on the way that you think about uh, communities or the way that we should like structure communities? Yeah, I could. I mean, because, because I'm blockheaded and I refuse to uh, run with the experience outside of the boundaries of the experience. I can only say that, you know, it is quite clear the love, the, the connection is there with my wife. Mm. And, and, and I guess you could actually make the claim, I hadn't thought about this, but you could make the claim that because of that connection, we form a family, which is a different type of unit than us separate. I like that. That's rather beautiful. Um, <laughs> I cannot say that I, I have the capacity to be in such a relationship with a stranger. I mean, sure. now that might be a one of my own limitations and maybe, you know, maybe the a trillion years in the future, we're all in, you know, utopia and populating the cosmos all in this loving state with each other, <laughs> maybe. Um, but I just can't say that with, with any confidence. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I, um, I appreciate that a lot. I'm, um, I'm just sort of, I'm enjoying how the like threads of of things in your thought, like connect and sort of probe one another. And so I'm looking for, hmm. you know, connections back to, back to other things that we talked about, you know, I'm not going to ask about love, but I thought, I thought communities hmm. were, um, it was interesting. And it's also very interesting to me that this like one profound experiential component is just like, mm -hmm. well, I have logic and also I love my wife. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, so here's something that's, um, profound. So I was talking to my friend about this, uh, earlier, right. It was either, when my wife's name is Julia, when, when uh, Julia and I were engaged or shortly after being married, we were talking to a friend that had like an Orthodox Christian background. And we were talking about this relationship between love and truth. <clears throat> and for me, I've found, I've struggled sometimes with um, truths, even if they're abstract truths. I like to say that 
It's like I'm, I'm on the search for truth. And I had an assumption when I began that I wasn't really going to find many truths. So it's like, you don't really know what you do if you'd found one, much less a really big one. So I would like, I'm like walking, you know, I'm, I'm in the forest and like, oh, here's a truth. And it's like something, it's like an arrow I put in my quiver back there and I forget about it. And I keep searching and keep searching. Well, when you stumble into the love truth, it's not something I found. You can't just put it away. It's not just one more trivial truth that you can forget about and search for others. It's like, okay, truth number one, things are the way they are. Okay, that's nice. Now I'm looking for more. And truth number two, uh, love is a, the highest state of human existence. Oh, okay. And I'm going to forget about that and keep looking at my other abstract <laughs> truths. It's just not the way it works. It's like, sure. oh shit, this, was, this is a truth of profound life-changing power that must stay kind of at the front of my worldview all the time. Um, so anyway, I was talking to my friend about this and he was saying, well, in his theology, love and truth are essentially two sides of the same coin. And I thought, oh, wow, that is rather beautiful. The truth is kind of an abstract thing. And then the, the, the most concrete truth that one can experience is the love state. So there's a sense there is in some scenarios, love is the truth, mm. right? And it, which is, uh, which is again, beautiful. Yeah, I have actually, I've always been quite taken with the platonic, and I mean Plato, you know, e equation of truth and goodness and beauty. Mm. Yeah. Um, and on so many different levels, like I think psychologically we experience those things together and in some sort of metaphysical sense that I can't quite put my finger on, you know, but there, there is a way in which, uh, yeah, we, what is truth while we're at it? What do you think? Mm. So... <laughs> I like to say that uh, truth is a word and it, and it has different meanings depending on different contexts. So there's one sense in which truth is the way things are. There's another sense uh, which you could talk about like metaphysical truth is the way things are. And I know they are the way that they are. I don't know how they are, but I do know that they are the way they are. Okay. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very important. Uh, this is the foundation of my knowledge. No. Um, there's another sense in which there are linguistic truths, which are descriptions of the way things are. So like I've got this water bottle, there is a state of the world, which is the truth. And I can make the claim a water bottle exists thus, which is a true sentence. So that's what I think um, truth is. Now in the, in the case of love, it's this weird thing where love can be a description of a state of the universe. So in the sense, it is a metaphysical truth. At that moment that you're aware of its existence, it is something like, a true part of the structure and the nature of reality at that time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like, I like that a lot. Although the love bit is like, how does the love bit fit into that? So it would be if, if the metaphys metaphysical truth is the way things are, mm -hmm. then to the extent there is love that, that you are in a love state and you are part of the universe, sure. then the unit, then it is the case that love is in some sense, truth. Right. Yeah. Because th that area of the universe, there is truly the love state. I see. Okay. Uh, that's so lovely. I, I really like that a lot. There were so many things that I wanted, wanted to talk about. We're running up in time. I'm wondering, um, like sort of what, what you're like up to right now. And if you have, you know, goals or plans, like what is Steve Patterson doing in the, in the world? Yes. So I've got a, a bunch of plans. Um, I'd like to write a few more books. Um, I'm, I, one of my other interests is Bitcoin. So I'm getting kind of more involved in the Bitcoin community. Um, 
I still want to do my, my podcast and I write at steve-patterson.com if people are interested in my articles. Um, yeah, I guess I could, I could, I could leave it there. I, I'm, I've, I chose to kind of go on this pursuit selfishly. So my idea in starting producing philosophy was not to gain a bunch of fame and be a, like a public figure. It was essentially, I would like to make enough money so that I can finance my own independent investigation into things. I'm kind of at that point. So there is always a possibility. I talk to my wife about this all the time. There's always a possibility where it's like, you know, I might've gotten as far as I wanted to go. And maybe I'll just make a statement about this is what I have discovered and then kind of disappear. <laughs> That's also a possibility. I'm not sure. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, I um, I appreciate that. I, I never get to, you know, I never get to that place of being as far as I want to go, or maybe I will someday, but <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't see it forthcoming anytime soon. Um, okay, well, that's really cool. Uh, do you have any final sprinkles of wisdom or thoughts or whatever that you want to share? No sprinkles. No, sprinkle no sprinkles. Free, okay. Sprinkle free over here. Yeah. <laughs> You're the first sprinkle free in a long time. Normally there's a very long sprinkle at the end. Um, okay, cool. Well, I will obviously, I will provide links uh, to your things in, in the show notes and everybody um, get at Steve. Don't get at me. I think that would be better uh, if you have questions uh, for him uh, being a literate internet personality. Um, <laughs> but you can get at me if you want to, and you know how to do that. So thank you all so much for tuning in and uh, thank you. Um, Steve, I think that this has uh, not just been productive, but it's, uh, you know, fun. So thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.